Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm feeling invincible because rock music and the aesthetics of it have always been something that have made me feel quite free um, and obviously pop music too and then as I grew up and I got more into art art is also something that I think can transform your mind and the way that you see the world and also highlight political ideas that you might not have been able to process otherwise and today's guest we are very excited about because it is freeze week and we are here with BMW again continuing our collaboration with them because Mm -hmm. this week is their BMW open work at Freeze 2022 and they have commissioned the most extraordinary artist who recently had a show at the Chisnell Gallery commissioned by um, our dear friend Zoe Whitley. I loved that exhibition and um, I'd actually never seen their work in person before and today's guest is from Los Angeles and is based there and works with all kinds of objects and materials um, from kind of concrete and microphones or microphone stands to barricades and all different kinds of objects and sound to spotlight the ways that space and sound are politicized. So we are very excited to talk about this new project. And this morning I've been singing to myself the song Rid of Me by uh, PJ Harvey because our guest has done a post today wishing PJ Harvey a happy birthday. And it's all in relation to the guitar that PJ Harvey was playing. And uh, Russell Tovey, you can't get rid of me. Um, <laughs> oh no <laughs> we would like terrifying <laughs> to, we would like to welcome to talk art nikita, nikita gale. gale hi nikita. Good morning, nikita hi hi how's it going good That's how good. are you good to, good to talk to you both i you can probably hear behind me i'm uh in install right now at freeze <laughs> So you're in, you're in the heart, the heart of Regent's, <laughs> Regent's Park Art Fair in London. Yeah, Thank you yeah. so much for making time to talk Streaming to us live. during your install. Really grateful. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so the noises behind you aren't the install of your of your own work. These, this is just no. the overall hubbub of the fair being put this together. This is all, this is just the fair being put together. So this is the first time that you've worked with BMW. This is... Uh, the first time you've collaborated with them on a scale like this how how did that come together how did you guys how did you guys like meet each other so i um i think they must have reached out in may of this year they reached out through my gallery in la commonwealth and council who i've been working with for the last like four or five years now and atelia the curator of bmw open work sent an email just inviting me to do a project. And I was very excited. I kind of immediately knew what I wanted to do, which is rare for me. I'm usually pretty indecisive. And when somebody asks me or invites me to do a commission, I, I have like a million ideas and I'm a Gemini rising. So then it's really hard for me to decide what to do. (laughs) But um, I immediately knew what I wanted to do for this project because like about seven years ago, when I was still in grad school, I had been doing all this work about cars and was thinking about cars in terms of like, you know, a kind of technology that's an extension of the body. You know, there are these things about cars and amplification, like the slight tap of a foot or the slight turn of a wrist, you know, gets translated into these like massive 
specifications of just like speed and space and movement. And so during all this research I was doing about cars, specifically in the US, is that, can you hear this person We're hearing it, but it's, it's, not, it's not terrible. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. Okay. It's like, as <laughs> it's all, I'm it's talking, all part of I'm the like, drama. You could shout, you could shout <laughs> at them, like, but yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it's freeze week, everyone. It's fine. <laughs> it's freeze week, everyone. And so um, as I'm doing all this research about cars, I start to encounter these sort of parallel lines of research around like the emergence of rock and roll as a genre. And I have always been interested in music. My mom was a music teacher. I like, you know, was making little experimental electric guitar compositions when I was a teenager, like in my bedroom and that kind of thing. And so music has always been this thing that's always sort of running in the background. But anyway, I was doing this research about car production and encountered this really interesting story that's kind of the starting point for this BMW project, which is that in the early 60s, 1963, Gibson Guitars, which is an American guitar manufacturer, uh, reached out to a car designer named Ray Dietrich, and they asked him to design an electric guitar body. And so at the time, like these offset guitar bodies that were later made very popular, it's like they were used in a lot of surf rock, but then later, like, you know, three decades later in the 90s, they became these very sort of like iconic guitars that you would see people like PJ Harvey, Sonic Youth, like all of the kind of like grunge you know, musicians started using these guitars as well. And so early 60s, this guy, Ray Diedrich, designs the Gibson Firebird. And it's the first time that a guitar has been designed specifically by a car designer, at least on such a large scale, is the Gibson Firebird. And it hasn't really happened since. And so I just had the story kind of in the back of my head is something that was really fascinating to me and so when bmw reached out i just immediately was like well obviously we should do that again <laughs> like it hasn't obviously, been done yeah. in a while and it would be really cool because how often do you get the opportunity to kind of work with a company that is just at such a massive scale and level of production and so i was able to work with the actual designers who designed the most recent BMW i7. And I told them the story about Ray Dietrich and Gibson, and they were really into it. And I just said, the premise was kind of like, I feel like there's this whole history of production of this instrument that was largely kind of overseen by and directed by, you know, cis dudes who are designing these instruments to the proportions of their own bodies like and their own kinds of tastes and interests and i think it would be really great to sort of design with other bodies and other interests in mind and so that was kind of the premise and so one of the references i used was this uh the music man guitar which is this guitar that was recently designed by the musician saint vincent and one of the primary kind of design specs for that guitar was that it has a really slim body. So there's space for people with breasts because most of these guitars just like completely smash down your torso. So there's no room for tits. 
that was like another thing that's another thing that I referenced to the designers when I was thinking it's like think about like you know just anatomical so how that's so just to stop you there it's so interesting that you know, a guitar can actually be misogynistic in its <laughs> in its entirety yeah. without really being yeah. considered that yeah. a woman might want to pick up a guitar. Yeah, I mean, this is also another thing with car design. I don't know if you know this, but like the statistics for the number of women who are injured more frequently in car accidents just because of the way that seatbelts are designed, right, it's like right. some astronomical percentage higher because the crash test dummies that are often used in these for like decades up until it's like a shocking date when they started using crash test dummies with breasts in smaller proportions. I think it didn't start until like the eighties or something, but Mm. yeah. Yeah. I do remember hearing this story once about how there was this certain car that women in, in an affluent area in the States were really into, but they kept chipping (laughs) their nails, opening the door handle because of the design. So the car manufacturers knew that it was popular with this certain demographic of, of affluent women that they changed the handle so that their, their nails wouldn't get chipped. And I can't remember when I read this story. Yeah. But it was an amazing story. I have to look that up. That's amazing. Nikita, I find your work so genius because you do highlight these kind of structural, uh, the, the way things are designed, the way things have been thought about um, within society and how it is so biased, you know, for particular people, mainly white, straight men, yeah. I guess. But I, yeah. I really find it so interesting because all of these stories kind of come out of what is in a way like an installation art form. You know, like if you think yeah. of your Chisholm yeah. show recently, it's an environment you create. Mm-hmm. How did yeah. you begin yeah. to like make works that were so ambitious in scale and also um, with so many moving parts? Because I always think your installations are so exquisitely put together, yes. but very complex yes. and and scientific almost. I feel like they're a symphony. Yeah. Also, it's, the musicality yes. goes through the installations. Yeah. It's like you're 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 the yeah. conductor of the orchestra. Yeah, I really like that. I really like those takes. I mean, it's really hard. I think like every time I do one, it gets a little bit easier. But I think I'm like a maximalist at heart, and so I always feel like whatever the thing is that I'm doing is possibly the last time I'll ever get to do anything. So I'm like, try not to put everything into this one thing. And so I think a lot about, I think a lot about my installations almost in terms of like um, pit stops is not the right word, but it's almost as if I have this full bag of references and research and each exhibition is an opportunity to put, a handful of those things into conversation at once and just I just have to relax and know that it's not the only time or the last time that I'll be able to kind of put certain ideas together you know like what gets thrown into relief for this specific project the BMW open work project it's like oh the thing that gets thrown into relief here or the themes that get thrown into relief are like cars and rock music but it's sort of like i often like to operate in like twos or threes in terms of themes at least like explicitly like in terms of what i'm naming at the time because i think it creates you know to use a music reference like really nice harmonics or chords yeah but it's very i mean it's also like a really intense editing process so it's always really helpful to have really great like curators like Atelia 
sort of working alongside with the projects. I, I like the idea of conversation as well. And I think for BMW, I remember um, Hedwig telling me ages ago that open work, the, the kind of idea behind it was about dialogue and encouraging new dialogues with the visitor. Um, what was it actually like for you? Because I, I think in this project, didn't you actually collaborate with the like BMW i7 designers themselves? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What was that yeah, like? It works. <laughs> I mean, it was really exciting because it's like, how often do you get to work with car designers or anyone who's sort of like designing such a large industrial level, you know, you just don't often think that like, oh, there's like a specific tiny room of designers who are designing, you know, like there's one person who designs the exterior, there's someone who designs the interior, there's someone who designs all the tech, there's a composer for BMW for the, for the sounds in the interior of this car. But I think I was just pleasantly surprised by how approachable everyone was. They were just all so excited and game for it. And also not to mention, I mean, the guitar designer, the luthier who we worked with in London, Ian Malone, who turned those designs into physical, playable, functional guitars, which is a whole other thing. And he's Do you play? Truly fantastic. I do play. Yeah, I don't play regularly anymore, but my mom is a music teacher, and so she taught piano. I never really learned. I can sort of get away with some stuff, but I taught myself how to play guitar when I was like 15 or 16, and then I was just making these little like experimental electric guitar covers and compositions, not much singing, mostly instrumental stuff, but were you inspired by particular musicians at that time? Was was there something that kind of drove you to pick that up, to express yourself? Yeah. Um, this is kind of, you know what? It's not embarrassing. I'm proud of this fact. So when I was like nine or 10, I was really into Cheryl Crow. I'm still a Cheryl Crow fan. Just like, I don't know, man. I just loved Cheryl Crow, that Tuesday Night Music Club album. And the first song I ever taught myself how to play, this was actually on a, it was like an acoustic, it was like one of those classical guitars because my mom had one of those because the strings were really soft. They're like nylon strings. So for kids, it's like very gentle on the hands. Gosh, I might've been even younger than 15 when I did this, but I was a teenager and I learned the chords to Strong Enough. You know that Cheryl Crow song? Strong enough to be my man? No. (laughs) (laughs) Russ, you know that my um, karaoke song is If It Makes You Happy. Oh, yeah. By Cheryl Crow. Yeah, that is my karaoke song. So, Nikita, if I see you at Freeze tomorrow or on Wednesday, I'm going to do a duet with you. Just scream in your face. (laughs) That's a good one. You know what? There is a Cheryl Crow song that's really good as a duet, which is that Kid Rock song picture. Picture, picture. Yeah, that's a good. Okay, we got some. We got some. Okay, I'm not gonna sing it. I always like. (laughs) We got a little bit. We got a little bit. I have to give you something. I'm gonna meet you at the BMW booth, and we're gonna do a Cheryl Crow (laughs) duet. So it's gonna turn into a karaoke booth. Mics to the car. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's not a bad idea. We're gonna do it. It's gonna be very entertaining. Don't, don't tempt me. So talking to you, Nikita. It's it's. Incredibly exciting because you're a multifaceted artist, but I feel like you have a multifaceted brain and a mind and you're approaching all your work from so many different areas that 
I'm triggered with nostalgia. I think of Terminator 2 and Back to the Future. And then there's this archaeological uh, interest you have. And you, you worked at the Natural History Museum in the lighting department. So there's this kind of uh, history, historical, I think of Jurassic Park, obviously, when anyone ever mentions archaeology, oh, yeah. it's a thing. And then, <laughs> and then you have the, the rock music. And I know growing up, you were born in Alaska. I think you're the first person we've ever spoke to who's born in Alaska, raised in L.A., you, you, you were part of a military family, so you were always on the road. So there's this, in my head, there's this concrete and travel and cars, and then there's Americana. And I think in my head, I have this stereotype of military uh, bases playing rock music loudly and everyone kind of dancing around, <laughs> oh you know, yeah, I, I, like a from Tom movies. And Maverick exactly. Popcorn. So I have, so I have, in, in my yeah, head, I have all exactly of these like images. That. Whenever I look at any of your work, it triggers me <laughs> nostalgically. And I think we're the same generation. I think, you know, I'm born 81, Rob's yeah. uh, 71. Yeah. I'm and not. Think, I'm 1980. <laughs> no, I know. I'm 1980. <laughs> That's so Rob's cruel. 1954. I was talking to someone about just making up birth birth years like exactly. in every bio exactly. just a different one it's just oh, like yeah, a good one. moving target but yeah, Nikita Gale born 1923 my question is with all this is that it it's so fascinating to me and, and a never-ending exploration into your practice but also for you living in that head do you have a linear way of working or is it kind of you know, you're saying you give everything to each project because you feel like it's the last. Does it take a lot out of you? And do you get tired sometimes of the amount of information that you take in and you are working out? Wow, Russell, that's such a wonderful question. Thank you for asking me if I get tired. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not, um, and that's not a reference. That's not saying the work is tiring. It's just the work makes an audience work. You know, and when yeah. I've always found that artists I mean, that create work like that yeah. Yeah. themselves are working a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very true. I mean, something that I think about a lot with my work is just attention and the nature of attention, because so much of the work, you know, at the heart of it is about the nature of attention and sort of like the structures that go into pulling or pushing attention in certain directions. Um, And I recognize that, you know, asking for someone's attention through making work is, it's a really huge request. And so I have to, I mean, I take that very seriously when I'm just like, I am asking someone to pay attention to this. So do I think that the stakes are high enough for it to be worth someone's time and also worth my energy like making the work in the first place and um yeah I mean I think just given my background it's like yeah I am always thinking about so many things I think we all are I would hope but um with my installations especially it's like the work is operating on so many different scales. There's like the sort of like large macro scale and there are also these smaller kind of things that operate when you get closer to the work. And so in some ways I try to think about the different modes of attention that can be activated through work, whether that's, you know, thinking about attention in terms of duration, thinking about attention just in terms of like form and material um 
in terms of just space and how you're being asked to move around a space or occupy a space. And those also feel like different conversations that are taking place as well, like invitations to kind of have different kinds of conversations with the work. There's a um, there's a quote that you had yeah. that says that your your practice is trying to maintain a practice of slowly reading the spaces I inhabit, which to me really kind of it makes me want to work out what that is, you know, and how I could do that as an individual and what what that entails. And you you mentioned the kind of the generous audience member which you're seeking to find your work, but this this thing of trying to slowly read the spaces you inhabit what how does that entail into the practice and in kind of your daily mantras i guess that's a good question i mean the um that's a really that's a good quote where did i say that that's good i'm slowly reading the spaces (laughs) i inhabit i mean it is true though i mean i go through you know i'm not gonna sit here and say oh every morning i wake up at 6 a.m and i meditate and i journal and you know, I drink two glasses of water because it's like, sometimes I do that. I go through periods where I do that, but then some days I'm like, oh, I wake up at 9am and I scroll Instagram for 45 minutes and maybe I get some work done. Um, But it's all kind of a, it's a process. And I feel like one of the most generous things I've done for myself recently is just realizing that I got to cut myself some slack sometimes. And I think we could all sort of use that. And I like to think of, you know, some of these installations that I'm creating as spaces where you get to kind of cut yourself some slack. Like you don't need to be looking at the work in one specific way. And I hope that there's never a kind of, you know, experience of going in and feeling like, oh, this artist has a really specific way in mind for how I'm supposed to be looking at this work, you know, like the work is kind of intentionally, you know, I think a lot about choreographing space and the way that like, sometimes you go into spaces, like the way that architecture is kind of like, Oh, it wants me to go this way or that way. And with a lot of my work, it's like, I want you to just kind of follow your instincts a little bit and go from there it's a beautiful Um, way of thinking it you know your your work made me think about it a lot mm -hmm. how architecture directs you where to look and you know we're talking about rock concerts bleacher seating where you're seated in these big stadiums which are huge architectural feats your body is positioned in a place that tells you where to look and I don't even consider that. You just go, this is what I'm told. To, this is this is where I've been told my body's going to be positioned and this is what I'm going to be looking at. And you're, you're kind of playing with that and twisting that and this thing of, you know, the barricade features a lot and, and I, there's these twisted bleacher seating, which again is, is architectural's way, these barricades of stopping you, directing you. It again has this concrete feel to it. This There's also like a violence attached to it, but it's also the way that humanity has channeled itself you know through generations of direction and and travel and speed all of these elements again you know come into the practice but it is true that in your installations you are given the freedom to explore and i'm sure there's are there are elements that you will miss but that's okay because it's it's 
you create these really incredible immersive experiences that that pull in so many ideas. Thanks. Yeah. And I mean, I think the most exciting thing to me, too, is just the conversations that I get to have with people about the work, like either when we're in the space or maybe someone's seen the show and they're just like, I just had this wild experience or it made me think of this thing. And it's always surprising to me what comes up. But I was I was actually having a, a conversation with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago and I was asking her, I was just like, do you ever feel a little bit like sometimes openings are just a little anticlimactic? Like you're just sort of like you finish the work and then you're kind of like, mm, now what? And she was telling me, she's like, you know, the thing I find most exciting about opening a show is sometimes just what happens a year later. You know, it's kind of like the beginning of this period of gestation where, you know, the ideas that came up during the making of that show or the conversations that happen as people see the show tend to produce other lines of thinking. Do you so read the comments? Sort of like continuous... Do you read the comments section then? Is that something? Because you can't <laughs> obviously have these conversations and dialogues in person constantly with these people. I well, I mean, comments on like it's. I'm not like so popular that people are like posting stuff like that. I didn't like this yet. Although I've gotten some negative comments on things before, but mostly, mostly these are just conversations that I'm having with friends or people who saw this. Like maybe people I don't know who saw. But, um, sorry to jump in there but I feel like negative comments yeah, yeah. are kind of something that I feel like you as an artist would be able to springboard from or work with or oh, yeah. appreciate I don't know I, oh, I, I mean sure. nobody appreciates negativity but I feel like these negative yeah. comments, comments are sort I, of things that challenge you and move you forward I've also noticed oh, yeah, though that absolutely. like people often say negative things because if if they've enjoyed something, they actually won't make necessarily make a comment. But if they didn't enjoy something, mm. or then they will be driven to do a negative oh, comment. Right. And it's only having done yeah. talk art that I've realised that. Because then when you actually meet people in the world, they're like, "Oh, they all loved it." But it's like you, I always hold on to some of the negative. Oh, it's stuff. an echo chamber. You think that's everybody just thinks that that's that's the consensus right. of everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, also with podcast comments, I mean, those are intense too. I feel like that's a whole other genre of commenting I, I i believe i believe all the good ones and i believe all the bad ones are just one person who lives under a bridge who's got right. who's, who's stealing yeah. wi-fi from a petrol garage nearby just commenting on everything and making up oh all these God, characters who's so not a real person i i really love the idea there and you said about then reviewing a, like a year later and reviewing a show and that's where the work begins and it, it relates to yeah, yeah. Your series, you, you said that ruin can be elegant and ruiners and how the fact that mm -hmm. a ruin, we look yeah. at a ruined architectural uh, building, for example, as being the end, as being finite. You know, it's had its experience of humanity and that's it. But you're really interested in post-human uh, existence. And for you, you would look yeah. at a ruin and think, no, that's the beginning. This is where yeah. you start from. And that to me is yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. You, you make me think in so many, like outside of the box and constantly. And it's incredibly yeah. challenging and inspiring. That's really great. I mean, this is my archaeology background. Yes, exactly. Honestly, it's just like, you know, when I was studying archaeology in undergrad, one of the first things that you learn, and this has always stuck with me, is excavation is destruction 
moving towards knowledge or trying to gain understanding by like retrieving materials is also causing a kind of destruction that cannot be reversed once you do it. Once you go into a site and you disrupt how things have been situated for thousands of years, you can't reverse that. So once you take something out, it's destroyed. And so there's that idea of ruin, of just like sort of like ruining a kind of like historical situation or historical scene, right? And then there's this idea of ruin as like, you know, architectural ruins or ruins that you might find like, you know, in public space, like tourist attractions. And something I have always really been struck by with ruins is that, you know, there's some kind of agreement happening between like a government or whoever like owns the property or whoever is responsible for maintaining there's an agreement that those materials are allowed to stay there, that they won't be replaced. And there's also an agreement with the people who go to see those things, right? To kind of like take in the history and experience it. It's like everyone's agreeing that those materials don't get removed or built over, that they're culturally and historically significant. You know, when you see these things, it's like, that's like centuries and centuries of people looking at each other and being like, yeah, that stays there, right? <laughs> you know? It's a, it's so, a social contract, it's like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a social contract. Just like, you know, going to a concert and agreeing that you're all going to sit in your seats or stand and look in one direction and like for a certain period of time and then you will follow the instructions and go home and do whatever. And so there's always these, you know, kind of social agreements at play. Within architecture, which is fascinating. Within architecture. Yeah. And this, yeah. you had this series of collages called Collapse, which I think are incredibly oh, yeah. beautiful, where you have Thanks. a rock concert yeah. within a rock formation. And what would be the floodlights yeah. is actually sunlight coming through. And the way you piece these works right. together are beautiful and they feel kind of ominous and I feel like embarrassed yeah. to be human uh, in them in <laughs> collages. But then they also feel. They feel meteoric, you know. You you have the the circular of the Colosseum, which is you know breaking down, and then you have the circularity of of uh, a stadium, and yeah. it's this yeah. this this playing with history and you know anthropology of humanity now and the way that we live. Right. It, it, for me, it just yeah. is so intoxicating and exciting. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just gushing, basically, being a right. fanboy. But it, it's it's re it's really. <laughs> It's just such a unique way of seeing the world. I love it. You know, you know you're talking about the, you. the structures, yeah. the kind of stadiums where you sit down. Something that's always fascinated yeah. me is even though, you, you know, it's all structured like that and you're being forced to sit mm -hmm. in a certain way, the actual element of live, like the live concert, like if you're going to a rock concert, mm -hmm. you know, you never quite know what's going to happen, even if it's all been rehearsed. There's an unpredictability, right. a kind of spontaneity. How important is spontaneity yeah. for your work? Because if you think of the current mm -hmm. installation you're about to show at Freeze, even that, mm -hmm. you know, with these guitars that you've designed, you yeah. know, there's going to be like activations with live performances. So what, right. I, what I liked is that tension between the super hyper plan and detailed you know mm -hmm. installation and artwork plus the unknown almost like the karaoke but what we were talking about that kind, of, oh, yeah. that kind of live spirit <laughs> i always feel i also feel right. it's the waiting as well like that there was an artist we had on called yeah. imra bassia khan who also had a yeah. solo show at oh, yeah. uh chisenhow and she had the phrase yeah. called tarrying yeah. 
tarrying appeared a lot to tarry mm. which is when you are waiting yeah, when it's yeah. anticipation you're waiting to yeah. see what happens when you're at a rock concert you yeah sit like down, sitting on the edge of your seat you're sit, waiting to yeah. see what happens you right. don't come, when we enter the lounge and see your work we're going to see these guitars well we're waiting for someone to pick them up aren't we right you know we're waiting for yeah. them to be played yeah this is another thing like that relates back to this interest in attention right and sort of like the moments or the things that sort of really can point or focus attention and then those moments or the environments that sort of ask you to really expand the limits or like the frames of what it is that you're focusing on um i did this show at the beginning of this year at um, 52 walker in tribeca new york and um the show was essentially, you know, there were these sort of like vignettes of sound and lighting sequences. And then the gallery would kind of go back into a dormant gallery setting where the lights, everything was just totally static and still. So it was behaving like a, you know, like a gallery without any kind of performance or anything happening. And these periods of stillness were just long enough to be kind of awkward where you weren't quite sure if something was going to happen again. Like if you walked in and maybe caught the last 30 seconds of one of the sequences, you would have to kind of linger or loiter for like seven to nine minutes for the next thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of pushes the limits of, you know, how long can you wait for something to happen again? But it's that kind of feeling of, you know, sort of like, lingering before or after a show like before or after a concert um where you're not quite sure when people are going to go on because no one ever starts anything on time um <laughs> or like you're in a jam session and you're like how long is this going to go on before they stop mm. but i do like like playing around with those durations like that and also there's like a direct connection between obviously the car design which you spoke about before and guitars, mm-hmm. you know, historically there's been this yeah. kind of link with the designers, but um, in yeah, your installation, yeah. so the, the new BMW i7, which Russ and I have actually driven to Somerset in, it was wild car. We love it, but it's actually an all electric car, which is really great yeah. for the future. And we both drive electric cars and we really believe in that, but um, you've actually connected it to the guitars. Is that right? So that it becomes the power yeah. source for the guitars to like, to, to exist in, in the performance. Yeah, so the car is being used as an amp. So we're working with a BMW engineer to run all of the sound from the guitars via Bluetooth. The car is essentially acting like a, it's almost like a PA system. Oh my God, that is so cool. The musicians, right, will have like their whole setup with the guitars and then that will be amplified through the car. So every all the sound is playing through the car sound system. And if you're visiting Freeze, you can go into the BMW lounge and you can experience this. This is something that's open to the public. Everyone can go in there. The the open work is there, right? Yeah, open work is there. And it's 3 p.m. on Thursday. Yeah, and then Saturday the 16th. Right, and there's a VIP opening performance also at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. Oh, no, actually, it's Saturday the 15th and Thursday the 13th. How did you find the musicians to play these guitars? And is is this going to be the first time they pick it up? For them, this must be an exciting moment to play a brand new car-designed guitar. Must be nuts. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it would be very exciting. I mean, they look 
really cool. They That's did so such. Nice. Everyone did oh such God. a fantastic job. Beautiful. But yeah, objects. this will be the first time. Have you played them? Have you picked them up? I am about to touch them <gasps> probably in like half an hour. They just oh, wow. arrived a couple minutes ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. So. And the, these have all been from sketches yeah. as well, no? So it's all. Yeah, been these are like, from the BMW designer sketches. Like a long process then, of design. Yeah, a couple months we've been working on it. So. Well, I've just I've yeah. just been sent photos from Hedwig at BMW, and they do look oh, extraordinarily great. beautiful and very oh, futuristic wow. and also historical. Like there's a really interesting yeah. energy in them. I can't wait to see it. It's very very exciting. So for everyone who's going to be visiting Freeze, you have to get down there. This is the the fifth edition of BMW Open Work. Yeah, they, they started back in 2017, but I think the pandemic meant there was one art fair that didn't actually happen. So this is You Are the Fifth, which is really exciting. Yeah. And you also, the show at the Chisholm Hill closes on the 16th of October, and this is yeah. your first yes. UK solo. It's titled In a Dream You Climb the Stairs. And this is an immersive experience that you go into that feels like you're waiting for performers to arrive. It's, it's the post-setting of an event that happened with a lot of dogs, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I, I love. I love dogs. And, and a fact that I learned from you yeah, is that dogs that actually dogs. see in, what is the color that dogs see in? I didn't really so know. So they have two, they have two, um, as opposed to like most humans have three. So they mostly see, I always have trouble d- like describing this in a way that feels ethical and correct because a lot of the science says they see mostly in a yellow blue color spectrum but that's assuming that dog brains are like human brains which they are not like who knows how they're perceiving color but they have like if a human eye had the same cones that a dog eye has it would mostly see yellow and blue oh i see and so there's a sort of lighting scheme in the exhibition that sort of shifts between this like blue yellow color spectrum and there's also, if yeah. you have a, a, a dog hearing, there's dog whistles going through the yeah. show. There's there's dog things. Dog, dogs yeah. feel like a, a big element to you. I, I read something which I found fascinating, yeah. which went along with the quote about how you read your space. And you, you co-parent a dog called Rufus, mm-hmm. who sounds awesome. Yes. And he He's comes to your awesome. studio. He comes to your studio and, and you watch him and, you know, dogs try and find a soft area. But you were looking around your studio and you didn't yeah. know where that would be. But the dog you watched the dog find an area which he perceived to be soft, which you'd never considered before. So the dog was doing what your mantra is to do just by nature. Right. Yeah. It's like they always, there's this element in the exhibition. There's like sound is always a big part of things for me. And I put things in this exhibition that are just intentionally outside of the typical range of human senses. So there are frequencies that are only audible to, you know, dogs or young children or species that like can sense much higher frequencies because there are moments in the gallery where it feels like nothing is happening or nothing is being played. When in reality, like if you have a dog in there, you might notice it reacting to something that it's perceiving that maybe is not perceptible there's a video that you made of, of where well, there's a work made of, of tina turner's uh, album private dancer where you set up yeah. this kind of robotic element that would play that would make lights and move to the album but you don't hear the album right. as an audience yeah. member but yet you're witnessing this yeah. Yeah. you know transhuman creature 
uh, mm-hmm. reacting right. and responding to her album. And again, it's just it's yeah. just so brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's like those frequ- it's like this idea of frequency that I mentioned earlier. Like, what are the different frequencies that a word can operate on? And also just inviting or asking you, it's like there's more than one way to perceive something. It's like there's the album, there's private dancer, the album, but there's also, you know, all of that staging infrastructure, like the lights and the trusses and all of that that goes into how a performer or figure like Tina Turner gets framed, you know, and those materials are often not meant to draw attention to themselves, but they're the thing that's sort of going into structuring this figure, like how we perceive this figure. So with that work, it's like, why not take like the sound and the body out of it and just really look at the materials and what those things are doing. You know, the work doesn't have the sound of the album, but there's definitely noise that those that technology makes. It's like all the squeaking and like worrying of fans and that kind of thing. So it's pretty, it's, it's surprisingly noisy despite there not being any music attached. And it's like, it's a process of denial. There's like the tension between feeling like you're being denied something, but actually through being denied something, you can kind of like focus on other aspects. It becomes something else. Yeah. Before we get on to our final questions, I'd love to talk to you about the history of barricades. It feels like something that you've sort of majored in. And again, this is something that (laughs) springs to mind, Le Miserable, as, you know, (laughs) everyone's singing at the barricades, trying to, and uh, what, tell me about how barricades became a fascination for you um, and what they, you know, historically how they came about. What we know now is like, you know, the bike rack barricades that we see in every sort of like public event or in public space. It's like for me, those objects are so ubiquitous. They're just everywhere. They almost operate as these, you know, we were talking about social contracts earlier. It's like those barricades, like when I see them in spaces, it's almost like there are these suggestions of a kind of like social contract right it's like they're asking people in spaces to sort of move in a certain direction to only go on one side or the other to kind of just like obey or agree to participate in this often temporary contract with space and i had been doing like I'd started doing this research where I was just looking at old concert photos like images of photos images of not photos images of concerts and images of protests right and sort of noticing that there these objects these barricades were almost always there they're like almost always in these images especially like more recent ones from maybe like the 60s on and so I just started to get really curious about like what is the history of these objects because the ones that we use now are just they're so flimsy they're incredibly porous like if you really wanted to kick them over you could i mean i love seeing images of you know protesters using barricades as ladders like just flipping them on their side so they can climb up walls and stuff and you know of course my research like led me down the road of just like researching the history of the word like the etymology 
of this word and like landing in, you know, like mid 19th century Paris, right? The Miserables. The barricades. Yeah, Yeah, the Miserables. And like, you know, thinking about the barricades as this active social space, you know, the barricades were used as stages. They were used as points for launching weapons. And the designs were really interesting. There's this guy, August Louis Blanqui, who's this sort of like French revolutionary figure who really kind of, I'm going to start going off on like a really deep tangent <laughs> if I keep talking, but he's sort of like, you know, was very, like he wrote these really interesting texts that were very improvisational and kind of informed a lot of like the situationist international movement and sort of like thinking improvisationally about space and how to occupy space and, you know, fuck things up in ways that were very temporary and creative. Like there's a text where he's encouraging insurgents to think about balconies as not as places to look at things or observe the street, but as places to launch weapons or, you know, like that kind of thing. And so, the barricade stuff, I went very deep in terms of like the research around those objects. And I still think about them a lot, but like, you know, the idea of a barricade is like a social contract was really sort of like, I don't know, it's a really crucial element for me. You take things for granted or they're peripheral and you bring focus yeah. in yeah. on these things that again, have become social yeah. contracts, have become the norm. We just expect them to be there, but to zone in yeah. on them in the way yeah. you do makes you reconsider the history of them, what they are, where they've come from, right. why they're there. And yeah. that's what yeah. your work's doing. And yeah. you just said like you you fuck things up, you know, creatively yeah. and spatially. And that's your yeah. ongoing practice is just to kind of fuck things up. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I and it's love like, it. I mean, and you said an interesting thing too. It's like, why is this there? Like sometimes you like I see things and I'm just like, why is this the way that it is? Like, there's this really amazing essay by um, Amiri Baraka, but this is when he was still going by the name Leroy Jones. And the essay, it's this really short essay called Technology and Ethos. And there's this line that goes something along the lines of like, nothing has to look or sound the way that it does. Things look and sound the way that they do because there are decisions and agreements being made about, you know, (laughs) the way that these things should look and sound, often largely determined just by, like, access and material reality and relationships of power and authority. And so it's just, like, nothing is... No, and normally this is sort of like not rocket science, but it's like nothing is neutral. No, and (laughs) and normally decided by men. You know, normally these decisions have all been made by men at every point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just like ruining things is kind of part of starting over, I think. And also ruining things and not getting rid of the materials, but sort of like reworking them in a way that's productive. But also that's that's very much like the history of rock music. You know, each each generation there's a new radical and the same in yeah. art, but like I, I kind of yeah. love that that element too, especially the significance yeah. of a guitar. You know, like oh, yeah. I even with, watched with that, that Elvis um yeah. that Elvis right. movie the other day, and it's like when you think about yeah. all of that, the radicality yet. of it, and like I don't know, I wasn't obviously alive at that point, even though Russell thinks I was. Uh-huh. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, look, Nikita, we we ask every guest two questions. Yeah. 
and we're very excited to hear your answers. The first is, if you could do an imaginary art heist, um, what artwork would you take home and why? If I could steal any, also I love heist <laughs> movies. I feel like it's <laughs> Do one of you? my favorite genres. I love heist movies. God, I did not prepare for this. I totally That's okay. You can just like do no, no, no. I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> you know, okay. This is a big one. This would be really hard to if I'm just not thinking about the logistics at all. I love Doris Salcedo's work, and. There's this piece that she did. I think it was originally in Chicago called Abyss. She's basically taken over this. It's kind of like a large, almost like this vault structure. And she just extends the roof of the structure that's made out of this like brick material. She extends the roof just onto all of the walls of the structure. So it feels like the roof is just swallowing the entire building. If I could steal, if I could, if I could steal that one, I would. I think it is. You can still see the yeah. crack slightly at the Tate Modern in the Turbine Hall where there was. A oh, big, really? Do you remember that? Yeah. If you look really closely, yeah, you can I see remember a faint that. Line God, that was, going through the turbine. That was a piece. I look at those photos and I'm just like, doesn't make sense. This is just. It makes no sense. Like yeah. how? Yeah, she's one of my favorites artist i love that makes complete so, so my art heist sense. would be going back in time and just pulling that entire building out of the ground <laughs> and putting it in a hangar somewhere <laughs> i think it was 2005 <laughs> that she first did it um, okay cool at the castello yeah. de rivoli museum um in turin torino oh it's in turin oh yeah. so, so it's ancient Ancient history, love it. Ancient history. That's nice idea, yeah. <laughs> the other question we ask is, what is your favorite Vintage. color and why? Favorite color. I'm really into navy right now. I love a navy blue. I'm just really into navy blue. I'm leaning very deeply into navy blue right now. Just mixing navy blue and black. I don't know if it's like the seat, the weather is changing, you know, just like dark yeah. blues. Yeah. It's stealth, yeah. stealth-like colors. It feels kind it's of, like again, concrete colors, industrial, yeah. battleship yeah. gray sort yeah. of vibes. Yeah, and I think it's also, like, sort of visually confusing. I know that often when I see navy without enough context, you're like, is it black? Is it blue? What is my vision doing? You know, it kind of... It makes things feel unstable. I think a dark blue destabilizes things. So that's, that's, Love that answer. That's Radical my, to the core. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Oh, my gosh. You know, I would have to say this was a very specific piece of advice that came at a very specific time in my career, which is I was deciding on um, where to go to grad school. I'd never been to art school before because I studied archaeology in undergrad. But when I was trying to figure out where to go, I had a friend of mine, an artist named Craig Drennan, who's also kind of a mentor when I was living in Atlanta, which is where I mostly grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. and. He said to me, you should go to school in a city where you might want to live after. 
And I was like, okay, well, I knew that I wanted to go to UCLA and I was like, okay, that kind of seals the deal for me. And he was absolutely right because one of the things I hadn't thought about was the fact that, you know, you're studying with these professors and like you have this cohort of students who are going to become your peers after you finish school. It's like, so there's like this whole community there. And um, yeah, I think that's, it's the first thing that comes to mind because I do think that like living in LA, it's just like the right city for me to be working in just the, the proximity to not just, you know, the industry and that kind of production, but also just, you know, that's car culture. That's music culture. Um, roads and driving and speed. It's roads, and distance. driving. Yes. Concrete, like the entire city is paved. Um, do you see? But, yeah. Do you see concrete, concrete as a fan? Do you love it, or do you see it as something ominous and violent and unnecessary? You know, I think my relationship to most things is fairly ambivalent. It's funny that I've managed to get through, like, we've talked this entire time and I haven't used that word yet because it's just like, that is really the, if someone were to ask me, like, what is your work about? I think my response would be, it's about ambivalence mostly. Like, I just don't have, I think it's dishonest of me to have, like, really strong opinions about things because the world is so, it's like, there's so many frequencies at which things are operating on and things are always pretty complicated even things that seem fairly simple and so my relationship to concrete is very complicated i mean i think right now with a lot of these environmental studies that are being done it's like concrete is really bad for the environment <laughs> duh like we kind of knew that but it's also like whoa like it makes things much hotter like it's not efficient at all it's pretty toxic and so you know there are negative things about it but it's also like makes a lot of things efficient too it's like roads sidewalks buildings I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. It's it, you know they say like yeah. you know you consider our post-human existence the planet's next cycle in the sedimentary right. rock of the Earth, and it goes down to like you know oh, limestone yeah. and everything. Our layer is going to be yeah. concrete and plastic when they dig yeah. us when they start digging down in yeah. like a hundred thousand years. They're going <laughs> to know that we existed because we left behind all of our plastic yeah. and all of our concrete. Yeah, mm. and lots of just holes, <laughs> like everywhere. In, in <laughs> Potholes. Yeah. You're just yeah. like, yeah, like you're just like sucking all the minerals and resources out. The good thing is there are there are cake. people mm. now trying to like you know do what they can to sort of with do technology and like BMW, for yeah. example, the yeah. way yeah. You know, exactly. sustainability yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. for everyone listening, uh, you can follow Nikita at Instagram, and she is at Nikita Gale. Just your mm -hmm. name, isn't it? 
um, yep. N-I-K-I-T-A-G-A-L-E. And Nikita's yes. solo show at Chisholm runs concurrently with Freeze London. So you can head over yes. to East London to one of our favourite public spaces, Chisholm Gallery. And um, In a Dream, You Climb the Stairs runs until Sunday the 16th of October. Um, so please go and see the show. But most of all, when you're at Freeze, head over to the BMW Lounge and see the yes. wonderful Open Work Commission with Nikita Gale. And thank you so much for your generosity today and openness. You have been so inspiring. I'm just like literally blown away by you. I think you're an extraordinary mind. Was, and yeah, um, it was so nice to talk to you both. So Thanks glad for, that we've been brought yeah. together. Yeah, I'm so happy. Yeah. And hopefully I get to see you at the fair, maybe. I know. I'll be here a lot. I will basically be living here. So <laughs> and you welcome you welcome everybody's comments so anybody has any comments they want to make yes. goes direct yes, to you comments feedback. Yes. straight to my face write it on the wall yeah there's no comment box it's just direct write it on ig yeah, yeah direct i think my feedback. my booth at the fair um i'm at a1 and i think i'm just around the corner from you so i'm literally gonna oh, pop awesome. in all the time and oh be my like God, hey do. Yes. let's do let's do our cheryl yeah, crew well, duet like, oh my God. <laughs> there we go i want to be, there be for a that. different song every day Different, or a different album. Happy. Maybe just say, God, I really want to. Oh, one really fun fact about Cheryl Crow. I forgot to mention this. When I started working at the Natural History Museum in LA, one of the reasons I was so excited is because that's where she filmed that music video in the no. Los Angeles Natural History Museum. You know, when she's in all the dioramas? It's LA Natural History Love Museum. This fact. We all need to I get know. on YouTube now and see that. Full circle. Um, well, it is a full circle. Uh, like everything. Is, yeah. Like everything. It's all, it's all like meant everything. to be. Like um, BMW. So big, big thank you to BMW. Um, they've been supporting the arts for over 50 years. And as we all know from our previous um, collaborations with them, they, they've supported some amazing artworks. They're the best. Artists. They are the best. Um, so thank you so much, BMW. And I'm um, looking forward to the continuation of BMW open work. And actually, on a music theme, I am going to be at Coco this week with the musician self-esteem presenting her alongside edith bowman so very excited for that freeze music live concert i think it's the biggest iteration of freeze music in its history which has been something that bmw have supported and um i think we're going to have like 1400 people in the audience or something whereas last year it was like 100 people you know what i mean so it's going to be super super exciting so i'm going to be on the stage uh, chatting about the fair with edith and also my love for self-esteem so it's a very I musical love- week for us self-esteem i'm such a fan i listen oh. to i've got prioritized pleasure on my workout list really sometimes i just have to go straight to that one to just like blast out some spinning it's just so, it's oh, so epic awesome. and it'll be available yeah. to watch um online from saturday as well which i think is the 15th of october okay. for everybody cool. who wants to see the live stream of the concert it's on saturday You can also follow BMW at BMW Group Culture and uh, you can learn more about the project on BMW.com and make sure you visit the lounge at Freeze, the BMW Open Work. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thank you, Nikita, and congratulations on this amazing BMW project. We'll be back very soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.